what would kill Dracula? Like, how would you kill Dracula? A stake through the heart or exposing him to sunlight. How do you kill Dracula? Um, with a stake into the heart, I would say. When he's out in the sun, he gets burned to a crisp and perishes. How do you kill a vampire? Um, wooden stick. The stake through the heart, you cut off their head, holy water burns them, that's pretty much all I know. Good evening, and welcome to Black Ink Red Film. I am your host, Stephen Newton, and with me tonight, as always, is... This is Stephen Payne, and we bid you welcome. And in tonight, um, I know we've been about a month or so late on this one, but we are talking about Dracula, and this is a meaty topic. We read the novel, we've watched about 47 films, and we'll be talking about uh, the differences, the similarities, the culture, and whatnot, and... We're going to be splicing in some interviews we've done with people just to get their sense of who Dracula is, what his powers are. It's going to be an action-packed episode. We plan on actually talking about every single page of the novel and all 213 films in great detail. In great detail. So drink your Gatorade and take an Advil and let's get going. So, Stephen E., as is common in our podcast format, we like to talk about the novel, and then we will talk about the representative movie. But in this case, as you mentioned, there's 213 movies. So I think we're going to have to change the format up a little bit. But as always, let's start with the novel. Wait, this just in. Since we started this podcast, another five movies have been made. <laughs> it's true. The, uh, the blood and sand of Dracula. <laughs> So we are going to, let's talk about some of the highlights of the novel, but but first let's talk about why, Stephanie, why do you think the legend of Dracula has endured these 200 years since the novel was published? Well, first of all, I think it starts with vampires are really what I guess you would consider a core monster in lore. I mean, they're right up there with the werewolves and ghoul zombies, etc., I mean, basically every culture, every almost every country in the world has its variant on the vampire thing. And they go back hundreds and hundreds of years. So starting there, the vampire is already kind of a big deal. Now the Bram Stoker novel, which wasn't even the first vampire, quote unquote, vampire novel, struck a nerve. And, you know, it, it arguably isn't even the best vampire novel ever written. But because of right material, right time and right place, it struck a nerve. And what's sort of interesting about its legacy over the last 120 or so years is that I think every gener for every generation it hits a different nerve. So, you know, the the themes from year to year has been interpreted in terms of, you know, it's it's a it's a tale of sexual promiscuity and the, the dangers of that, of racial mixing, of foreign invasion, capitalism, fear of homosexuality, and a lot of just heavy religious tones, some of which are very on the nose. So, I, I think Dracula has endured extremely well because of all those things. And Dracula, of course, is the recognized king of vampires. It really isn't even a great second place as far as great uh, vampires, other than maybe Lestat and Strahd, if you're a Dungeons & Dragons player. <laughs> right. um, but no, Dracula has, uh, has endured all these years fairly consistently across multimedia because it, it's, uh, it's a core monster and he continues to strike various nerves. The other thing, too, and I think in modern terms, vampires represent the ultimate identity thefts, thieves. Mm. So I think that's another reason that Dracula continues to resonate. All good points. Let's do some level sitting here. Why don't we talk through the high points of the novel, like the bullet points, what happens in the book, how it opens, who our main characters mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. I suspect some of our listeners who have not actually read Dracula, which I hadn't done prior to this podcast, might be surprised like I was at some of the things that were in it and actually out of it. Well, first of all, the things that makes the thing that makes the novel very interesting is that uh, it's essentially a series of very long diary entries from a number of the key characters in the novel. In many ways, this was what would be the equivalent of a found footage movie. Yeah, in fact, it's entirely diary footage. Yes. It's like diaries and journals and I think in a few brief cases, some uh, newspaper clippings. Yes, with people who all have impeccable memories, <laughs> right. apparently because they didn't have television or other things to That's distract right. them. But the essence of the novel is um, about 
young Jonathan Harker, who heads out to Transylvania to meet with um, the somewhat mysterious Count Dracula about purchasing some property in London. Uh, the conversations about the purchase go quite well, except Dracula seems to be a little possessive of Harker's company, to the point where he doesn't want him to leave, and in fact goes through some very ominous means of keeping him in Transylvania. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, Harker gets trapped inside the castle with uh, Dracula's quote-unquote brides, while Dracula gets on a uh, gets on a ship, the Demeter, makes his way to London, having some seafood along the way. And once he gets to London, he uh, essentially begins to stake a claim there, gets his co coffins laid out in various locations across the city. This is where I would rename the novel The Quest for Dracula. So, so to give our readers yes. some, some context here, I think this book's about 800 pages long, at least a version yes. of the book I had. All the pre-business that Stephen E. just talked about happens probably in about the first 60 pages or therefore, Correct. thereabouts. And then we don't have any first-person Dracula for the next 200 pages, 300 pages. In fact, I don't think we ever have a direct interaction with him until the very end of the book. I think I could be wrong. Um, my Kindle edition, I think, suggests it was a 220-page gap between Dracula's last appearance in the first first few chapters and when he actually shows up again. Right. But anyway, essentially from that point on, it becomes Dracula establishing his presence in London and our heroes who will include um, Mina, Jonathan Harker's bride-to-be, uh, Lucy, Mina's friend who has several different suitors, Dr. Van Helsing, who becomes our expert in vampirism, who all then re uh, slowly realize that they may have a vampire problem in London and them setting about tracking the vampire down, chasing him all the way back to Transylvania, leading to a, quite frankly, uneventful conclusion where they dispatch the Count. Yep. Uh, I think the one we missed is Renfield in there. Uh, yes. So Dr. Jonathan. So Lucy has three suitor suitors. She has uh, Dr. Seward. She has a Texan Quincy... Morris, Quincy Morris. Morris Quincy, Quincy Morris. And then, of course, uh, the the dude, Lord... Homewood, Arthur Homewood. Yeah, him? and yeah. he becomes a lord halfway through the the book. Well, right? the book's long enough, he would have had time. I don't yeah, specifically remember that. Somebody dies and he becomes a lord. There you go. The title. Yeah, Happens so to all of us. There's a lot of rich people in there. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was one of the things that surprised me about the novel was that Dracula basically has very little all the action with the exception of those first couple of chapters almost all the action of dracula happens off screen it is people reacting to the effects of dracula i think the most direct outside of the beginning of the novel the end of the novel they finally chase him down dracula is quote unquote preying on lucy i think is probably be the best word to right, use there right I mean, Dracula is a presence through the absolutely, yeah, middle to late to third act or so of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a couple, uh, you know, kind of kind of sideways sightings of him. He may or may not be a bat in a few scenes, but mostly we do see the effect of what he's doing more than we do actually have interaction with him. He, if I'm not mistaken, from when he leaves the castle leaves Harker alone. He does not have another line of dialogue through the entire novel. I think that is incorrect. I think there's at one point they're actually chasing him at the very end and he says something like, ha, you fools, or something to that effect. But yeah, it's... He didn't have a lot to say. He did not have a lot. <laughs> there's no yeah, great... Nothing meaningful. There's no great Bond villain monologue at the end, no. There is a great, in fact, maybe we should add this. There is one great monologue, he says, where he talks about the family, his family and his history of Dracula. In fact, why don't we have Bob tell it to you? We ZKs have a right to be proud, for in our veins flows the blood of many brave races who fought as the lion fights for lordship. Here in the whirlpool of European races, the Ugric tribe poured down from Iceland the fighting spirit which Thor and Woden gave them, which their berserkers displayed to such fell intent on the seaboards of Europe, aye, and of Asia and Africa too, till the peoples thought that the werewolves themselves had come. 
Here, too, when they came, they found the Huns, whose warlike fury had swept the earth like a living flame, till the dying peoples held that in their veins ran the blood of those old witches, who, expelled from Scutia, had mated with the devils in the desert. Fools! Fools! What devil or what witch was ever so great as Attila, whose blood is in these veins? He held up his arms. Is it a wonder that we were a conquering race, that we were proud, that when the Mujur, the Lombard, the Aviar, the Bulgar, or the Turk poured his thousands on our frontiers, we drove them back? Is it strange that when Arpad and his legion swept through the Hungarian fatherland, he found us here when he reached the frontier? That the Honvogelash was completed there, and when Hungarian flood swept eastward, the Zikis were claimed as kindred by the victorious Mugyors, and to us for centuries was trusted the guarding of the frontier of Turkeyland. Aye, and more than that, endless duty of the frontier guard, for, as the Turks say, water sleeps, and enemy is sleepless. Who more gladly than we throughout the four nations received the bloody sword? or had its warlike call flocked quicker to the standard of the king. When was redeemed that great shame of my nation, the shame of Kosovo, when the flags of Alak and the Mugyor went down beneath the crescent? Who was it but one of my own race, who as voivod crossed the Danube and beat the Turk on his own ground? That was a Dracula indeed. Woe was it that his own unworthy brother, when he had fallen, sold his people to the Turk, and brought the shame of slavery on them. Was it not this Dracula indeed who inspired that other of his race, who in a later age again and again brought his forces over the great river into Turkey land? Who, when he was beaten back, came again and again and again, though he had to come alone from the bloody field where his troops were being slaughtered, since he knew that he alone could ultimately triumph? They said that he thought only of himself. Bah! What good are peasants without a leader? Where ends the war without the brain and heart to conduct it? Again, when, after the battle of Morach, we threw off the Hungarian yoke, we of the Dracula blood were amongst their leaders, for our spirit would not brook that we were not free. Ah, young sir, the Zikes and the Dracula, as their heart's blood, their brains, and their swords, can boast a record that mushroom grows like the Habsburgs and the Romanovs can never reach. The warlike days are over. Blood is too precious of a thing in these days of dishonorable peace, and the glories of the great races are as a tale that is told. And we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Bob Brinkman, and he's amazing. Nice work, Bob. Okay, so what did we like about the novel? Again, for much of we can talk about Dr- Dracula disappears through a lot of the novel, I think a lot of the imagery is very creepy and holds up very well. I kind of like aspects of the... Well, no, I, not even aspects. I like a lot of the uh, the scenes where we're, we're dealing with what Dracula's doing without him being on screen. The scenes with Lucy are very tragic and very powerful where we slowly see her literally being drained of her life. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, taking on some very strange characteristics. They talk about her gums are receding. Her teeth are becoming unusually uh, pointed or long. There's a lot of really terrific eerie imagery where Dracula may not be directly present, but they talk about this strange large bat that keeps flapping outside of her window. Even earlier, the scenes with Dracula and Jonathan Harker are very powerful because Dracula is a very powerful and manipulative individual. He's like the worst corporate boss you could possibly have. And you can see how intelligent and how intimidating he is through those early scenes. I like the I like the dialogue. I mean, excuse me, the it is diary. very colorful language. I mean, the, it's very the colorful prose language. is beautiful. Yes, in some of those, yeah. it definitely is. I mean, Stoker knew what he was doing with this novel. I think the di- the format of the um, diary entries is kind of incredulous as they may be to some degree. I think they are very strong as well. It makes for you get different characters' perspectives on what's happening. And um, I think it makes it, it's, it's an interesting novel. 
It is interesting. I think one of the things that surprised me about the novel is there are several instances of child violence. So we we blew past the early scenes of like sexuality. So sexuality is a big part of the novel. The um, the wantonness. There's there are several themes about how Dracula's brides are becoming more wanton. You can tell Lucy's descent into her own vampirism once she becomes infected through her. You know, she's becoming more voluptuous and whatnot. But one of the interesting scenes with the brides is Dracula actually comes back and feeds his brides uh, a young baby. And after feeding the young baby to the brides, the mother comes crashing at the castle. Yeah. And, and like, what have you done with my child? And, and it's like really creepy imagery. That's, um, I'd not seen, I don't think, I don't know if you've seen more of these. I think, I think I'm up to five or six Dracula films, but I haven't seen anything that you know, horrific in any of the novels so far of, of the kind of child killings. A handful of them deal with, uh, with uh, Dracula feeding, a, not only a small child, but a baby. Yeah. I think three or four of them do maybe. Right. Um, I don't remember any of them having the scene of the mother coming and wailing at the loss of the child, but yeah, it's material that I, I a lot of the filmmakers were not going to be overly comfortable with. Right. So one of the things when I went walking into this novel, I had the impression, I don't know what movie I got the impression from, that Renfield, the role of Renfield was always, he was a henchman to Dracula, and he was helping Dracula because Dracula couldn't be seen in the daylight. So he was the one that took care of all the paperwork and whatnot. And that was not the case in the novel, by any means. Renfield in the novel is, it's almost like he's being infected by the presence of Dracula, and he's he's also trying to consume these life forces because he feels that Dracula is almost going to become a savior to him and offer him a better life. But he's definitely not helping him out in any meaningful way. He spends the entire time in Seward's prison, insane asylum. Well, from again, this is Renfield comes into play during the whole stretch of the book where there literally is no Dracula. Right. And for me, Renfield in the novel is the equivalent of the barrels on the shark in Jaws. They suggest the presence of the monster without it actually being the monster itself. Because Renfield, like many elements in the in the middle of the book basically things to suggest the presence of dracula without him being really being there i mean he's as much of anything a harbinger of what's happening right you know you get the impression that he's a random loony in the asylum who's looking out the window and seeing happens to see dracula doing and there is you know perhaps some psychic bond or you know maybe dracula saw him and and has decided and is manipulating him a little bit but um, Renfield's role in the book is, is just basically that he's another bit of sideways implication mm-hmm. of Dracula's presence and what he's doing more without Dracula actually having to be on screen right? or on page, excuse me. I forgot. We're still talking about the book. <laughs> yeah, we are in the book still. So the other, I think the other two most memorable scenes for me were, so spoiler alert, there's always spoiler alerts in here. Lucy succumbs to her wounds. She's um, Dracula's preying on her. Uh, unlike in many of the movies, there's no. It does. I don't. I don't think there's an association to Lucy, other than I believe he might have saw her cameo in Harker's possession at one point about why she becomes his target. But she does become Dracula's target, and he starts preying on her, and he's slowly sucking her blood out. And at, at some point. The boys, Van Helsing and uh, her husband, have to go down to the crypt to kill her. And and that's a pretty grass, ghastly scene as well. In fact, I think that was that scene of them, Van Helsing, convincing Jonathan, uh, jo- yeah, Jonathan, that he has yeah. to kill off his bride and then actually performing it is, is, in my opinion, some of the most effective prose in the novel. Um, so that was one big scene in it. And then I guess the other one is the, 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 the entire end of the novel is a big bureaucratic chase scene. So unlike any of the movies I've seen, uh, Dracula shows up in London with about 50 coffins that he can retire into and rest. And those coffins have been hidden all over London. And so I would say a good, I don't know, 50 pages, 75 pages of that are them tracking down all the different coffins and spiking them closed with holy wafers and whatnot. So Dracula can't go back to them. Dracula finally realizing he's 
in the shit. So he has to flee back to Transylvania in his one remaining coffin on a boat. And then it becomes a big chase scene towards the very climax of the novel where then he's dispatched with not a whole lot of pomp and circumstance. Um, In fact, Bob, tell us how he gets killed off. The sun was almost down on the mountaintops, and the shadows of the whole group fell long upon the snow. I saw the Count lying within the box upon the earth, some of which the rude falling from the cart had scattered over him. He was deathly pale, just like a waxen image and the red eyes glared with the horrible, vindictive look which I knew too well. As I looked, the eyes saw the sinking sun, and the look of hate in them turned to triumph. But on the instant came the sweep and flash of Jonathan's great knife. I shrieked as I saw it shear through the throat, whilst at the same moment Mr. Morris's bowie knife plunged into the heart. It was like a miracle. But before our very eyes, and almost in the drawing of a breath, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. Right? Now compare that to the death scene of Lucy. Bob, one more time, please. Arthur took the stake and the hammer, and when once his mind was set on action, his hands never trembled nor even quivered. Von Helsing opened his missile and began to read, and Quincy and I followed as well as we could. Arthur placed the point over the heart, and as I looked, I could see its dint in the white flesh. Then he struck with all his might. The thing in the coffin writhed, and a hideous, blood-curdling screech came from the opened red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The sharp white teeth champed together until the lips were cut, and the mouth was smeared with a crimson foam. But Arthur never faltered. He looked like a figure of Thor as his untrembling arm rose and fell, driving deeper and deeper the mercy-bearing stake, whilst the blood from the pierced heart welled and spurted up around it. His face was set, and high duty seemed to shine through it. The sight of it gave us courage so that our voices seemed to ring through the little vault. And then the writhing and the quivering of the body became less, and the teeth ceased to champ, and the face to quiver. Finally, it lay still. The terrible task was over. And Bob's hitting the notes well tonight, isn't he? <laughs> he's, he's amazing. Well, I was going to say that you're talking about, you know, one of the frustrating things about the book is that there's a huge section dedicated toward them doing all this looking for the coffins and working with... Uh, basically, if you're a really big fan of inventory management and tracking packages, <laughs> yeah. this is the novel for you folks. That's right. Get through all that vampire stuff, and man, you're in for a treat. I, I'm sure it's required reading at the UPS trading grounds. <laughs> Actually, like if shipping logs, this and... is another reason you couldn't have this movie made today off the novel because all you have to do is click on "Where's my package?" and you pretty right, much exactly. the story's over in about thirty pages. Oh my god. Okay, so the fun part of this podcast is obviously when we compare the books to the movie. Let's start that now. So the interesting thing with comparing to a movie, however, of Dracula is is like we joked around. It's 213 the official number? Is that what we have? Actually, I think, well... (laughs) Depends on your source. According to Wiki, uh, Wikipedia, to whatever date that was last updated, there are some 217 movies that involve Dracula in them, which puts it just behind Sherlock Holmes, who had some 233 movies. Now, as I was telling you, as we're recording this, there are probably another five of both in production at some point in this world. Right, because we are just talking about Dracula movies, not vampire movies. Correct, correct. I think even if you look at IMDb, there are at least two or three Dracula movies in development right Mm -hmm. now, or Mm -hmm. miniseries or whatever else. So, yeah, covering, and I probably have seen almost all of them, which tells you what I do with my spare time. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and essentially... What that means is that since 1922, well, well, okay, the the book was published in 1897. The first stage play adaptation showed up within about a decade or so after that, I believe. So from 1922, when Nosferatu came out in theaters to today, you've had pretty much every decade, except from really the 80s for a number of reasons, have had their signature Dracula films. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's it's been a tremendous legacy. And like I said, I, I will probably have another couple of them coming out anytime in the near few year, years, especially if Universal's serious about continuing on with their quote-unquote Monsterverse right. series. Right. So, um, but as far as the movies go, I think I had identified 12 movies that in varying levels of quality most ad- most accurately reflect intent of following the novel. Hmm. Now that's some legalese I'm putting there to say that Billy the Kid versus Dracula is not making my list. We have some fingers here. Yeah. We do, yes. Okay. So Billy the Kid versus Dracula, not making my list. Abbott and Costello meet, you know. That one didn't make my list, nor did old Dracula, Dracula blows his cool, or <laughs> any number of other things that happen. So I'll quickly go through this list just to be thorough. I start with the 1922 Nosferatu by F.W. Murnau, the silent classic. Now, some purists will put an asterisk next to that and say it's technically not a Dracula movie because uh, Dracula is called Count Orlock, a number of other things. However, a lawsuit won by Bram Stoker's widow a few years later would say otherwise, so this is a Dracula movie. Then we go to 1931 where we get Todd Browning's legendary Dracula with Bela Lugosi. That, of course, is the one that will be best known forever. Shot at the same time as kind of a curiosity piece was the Spanish-language version of Dracula, shot on the exact same sets and with the exact same script, just with a Spanish-language cast, although, amusingly enough, an English-speaking director. We then jump ahead, 1953, Dracula Istanbulda, otherwise known today as Turkish Dracula, a very rare item, but has some interesting... Interesting firsts in it. Um, it was a black and white film. It's the first Dracula film in which Dracula is featured with fangs and also shown crawling up the wall. It's also the only Dracula film in which there are no crucifixes used by his being shot in a Muslim country. Mm. We then go ahead a few years later to Hammer Film Productions' Dracula, or better known in the U.S. as The Horror of Dracula, with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. This was the first Dracula film in color and was a big, big deal launching eight sequels over the next couple decades. 1970, legendary exploitation filmer Jess Franco, filmmaker Jess Franco, tried to make his prestige film called Count Dracula, which was supposed to be a very accurate version of the novel, and would, interestingly enough, feature Christopher Lee as Dracula, although not in the Hammer series. Hmm. And if you're confused by that, it's the one in which Christopher Lee has a mustache. (laughs) Which would actually be accurate to the novel. Which would actually, and actually it's the only time, one of the few times Dracula's had a mustache. 1974 was a big year for Dracula's. Dark Shadows producer Dan Curtis and legendary sci-fi author Richard Matheson would give us the TV movie Dracula starring Jack Palance, which also interestingly enough has a place in history in that it would either be, depending who you ask, it was either influenced by or would directly influence uh, the very popular Marvel Tomb of Dracula comic book series. Oh, interesting. In subsequent years. That same year, and I don't count this film, although I dearly love it, would be Blood for Dracula, which also known as Andy Warhol's Dracula. Mm. 1979 gave us John Badham's Dracula, starring Frank Langella, in one of the much, uh, very good versions. This is also one of the first really romantic takes on the Dracula legend. Um, but 79 was a big year for Dracula. Because along with that film, we also had the legendary Werner Herzog's Nosferatu das Vampir, which was his remake of the 1922 film with Klaus Kinski as the vampire. That same year, we would also get um, a number of lesser Dracula films, and probably the most uh, probably the most successful of them was the comedy Love at First Bite, which was probably actually the first time I saw a Dracula film in the theater. I was going to say, that's probably <laughs> the first yeah. one I saw in the theater. Yeah, yeah. so that, there you go for that bit of history. We then jump ahead to 92. Francis Ford Coppola gave us Bram Stoker's Dracula with Gary Oldman, Anthony Hopkins, Wynota Ryder, and a badly miscast Keanu Reeves, among other people in it. Whoa. Whoa. It's also the only one, two of one Oscars, was nominated for 413. 2002, we get a very interesting oddity in the series. Dracula, Pages from a Virgin's Diary, made big by Guy Madden. This is interesting. It's a feature-length film that's a silent black-and-white ballet version of the Dracula hmm. tale, which is actually quite interesting in its own way. And I won't say finally, but as far as relevant films go, we go to um, Dario Argento's Dracula, also known as Dracula 3D in 2012, 
which has some interesting characteristics about it and some takes on the story. Uh, for the record, it's also the only Dracula film where at one point he turns into a giant praying mantis. Well, sometimes you got to do that. Hey, you know what? Who said he couldn't? So those are really the key films. Interestingly enough, as far as the legacy goes, so if you look at what's happened through these films, and again, these 200 and however many films you want to count, give or take 20 in my opinion, four actors involved in these films would really forever be defined by the role. Two of them, particularly Lugosi and Christopher Lee, would become legends built off of this role. You had two past or future Oscar winners playing Dracula. Five legendary directors were involved with it. Really, as I said earlier, every decade except for the 80s has had a signature Dracula film. And you have overall 13 past or future Oscar winners and four other nominees were involved in these films. So Dracula has had a huge role in, in American, well, not just American, international cinema for the last 120 years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is probably, in terms of iconic monsters, right, this is either, like we said, either the number one, maybe number two compared to... Frankenstein. No, he's of, it. He's yeah, even yeah. above Frankenstein. I mean, it's yeah. probably a close call. I haven't looked at the Frankenstein numbers, but Dracula's right there even ahead of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. So the way we're going to handle this tonight is Stephen E. did this grid. I, in, in the interest of full transparency, I've seen about five or six of these movies that we're going to talk about. And I think we're just going to riff back and forth on some of the key issues on which did we like and why and who do we think played the best Dracula and anything else that we think is kind of interesting to talk about. Well, I think one of the key things we want to talk about too would be, so again, we've talked about the novel, we're going to talk about the films. I think we take a look at what, you know, what films best or most accurately reflected the novel. Right. Um, so let's open with one. that. What's yeah. your, yeah. So I think you and I are agreed on this one. So my take on the one that actually best represents the novel in terms of trying to match the the characters and the key plot points that we talked about earlier would be the Coppola Bram Stoker's Dracula. I agree with that. And I would, um, I think I have that ranked. Yes. I have that ranked as my top, my top most quote unquote accurate depiction of the novel. That being said, here's the thing about that. It captures the most elements from the novel. Mm-hmm. But also, you can make an argument, it throws the most additional stuff into it also, which is, I think, a picking point some folks have had. Interestingly enough, because I was doing some additional research on this, was that the only adaptation of Dracula that is regarded as being more accurate hmm. than the Coppola version is the one I've never seen, <laughs> which is the 1977 BBC miniseries with Louis Jordan. Oh, okay. Um, it's generally regarded as being just a tiny bit more accurate, but it also had a sense of well it was a mini series but frankly at two and a half hours it wasn't much longer than coppola's film right. but it's slightly more accurate than the coppola version but as far as cinematic uh, achievements go it's really the bram stoker version then it's probably the 1970 jess franco version then it's almost like pick one after that yeah. So, Stephen E., what was your favorite, what was your, just your favorite Dracula movie? Actually, let's just start with that. Well, my favorite Dracula movie has always been the 58 Horror of Dracula. I actually have that ranked in my top 25 horror films of all time. Uh, the one with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll admit, part of it, it's a wonderful film. It's extremely well-paced. It's vivid. It's sexy. It's, it's grotesque when it needs to be. And it's just, I think probably the most efficient telling of the story with Dracula really being portrayed as a true monster. Part of what colors my love of this film admittedly is the fact that it spawned a franchise of really mostly good to very good movies after that. In fact, interestingly of all the hammer Dracula films, they slowly eventually tell, fill the gaps that they didn't cover from the novel. Mm. For example, Renfield shows up in Dracula Prince of Darkness a few years later, and he wasn't in the original horror of Dracula. So for me, I just, I think it's a fantastic film. I mean, I, I look at a number of these other ones on the list. I consider both, both Nosferatu films to be absolute classics and just beautifully made films. In fact, the 22 version, the, some of the things in that film, the 1922 film, almost 100 years old, some of the visuals in that are still the scariest things you're ever going to see. Right. And, you know, the 31 Dracula film, uh, the Bela Lugosi version, is still just a beautiful, elegant, wonderfully produced, iconic film that's just hard not to love. So 
I've loved a number of the Dracula films, but for me, Horror of Dracula still remains the go-to, not just Dracula film, but one of the go-to horror films for me. For me, of the movies we've watched, I think some Draculas are more accessible than others, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But for me, the one I have enjoyed the most has been the Klaus Kinski, Werner Herzog, Dracula. And I would say it's not accurate to the novel. I mean, it's clearly there's Dracula, there's some of the characters and whatnot. But Dracula is a walking pestilence in this novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he is he is all horror. There's no charm. He is death embodied. This, I, if there's, you know, we talk about the Dracula being the undead and sometimes that's, you know, children of the night and blah, blah, blah. But it's like this one, he really, he's a ghoul. This, this guy is a ghoul. Well, you've described, I think you very well described him as a real cursed creature. Right. So that has been, um, if I could only give you one to watch, it would be that one. So let's go through some of the other elements. So in my top five, so I did talk about what do I consider the most accessible Dracula. I would actually say that the Bram Stoker one was quite accessible, even though it was a bit of a muddled, it, it was kind of all over the place. I would actually say the Frank Langella movie was quite um, well-made. I, I enjoyed it a lot more watching it for this podcast than um, I did the first time I saw it, and I was granted much younger. It's a charming Dracula. You could see why he was considered sexy. It was it was much more a love story than a horror story. You know, uh, Van Helsing, and who uh, it was our, our boy Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing in that one? Oh, no, uh, Olivier. Oh, Olivier, that's right. Mm-hmm. But very well done. And I think if you if if you if there's something that you want to watch with the kids, I think that one is an easy film to get through. Yeah, the the land the yeah the John Batham Frank Langella version is a very elegant film. It's right. in fact, it's probably the best written of all of the Dracula films. Mm. It's a very tight screenplay. It handles uh, the changes it makes from the novel are actually very intelligent ones. I think, including starting the film with the Demeter scene, which I thought was a great yeah, artistic was very choice. Yeah. So it, I think you're right. I mean, accessibility is tricky because its accessibility really is based on generation and based on the style of sure. films out at the time. But I agree with you of the ones we've seen. I think it's probably probably aged the best mm. of a lot of these in terms of that of the accessibility factor. I think it's a terrific film. My only my only problem with it was it's not a great horror movie because it really no, is it's a more, love movie. Yeah. It really is a it's a yeah. tragic and and perhaps dark love story, which doesn't make it bad. You wouldn't um, have Twilight movies without this movie, right? This, probably not. Probably yeah. not. I remember when it came out. Because they really were pushing uh, Langella, who'd played him on stage as well, as the sexy new Dracula. I remember some one film critic said, he's so sexy you'll want to leave your window open with a target painted on your neck. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an underrated film. It didn't do very well at the box office at the time for a number of reasons. But I think it, it definitely is in the top, you know, the very top of the Dracula films. And I would say for my choice of what movie best characterizes the caricature of Dracula. So when people say, when you think of Dracula, what do you think of? And, you know, you think of these, the the harsh accent. And I want to say, I mean, it's Bela Lugosi. I think Bela Lugosi is probably the one. He's he's basically the, the Sean Connery of Dracula's, right? He, <laughs> my suspicion, he is the one that everybody else is going to be compared against. And he set the, the mold and everybody else is like, doing something different because of how Bela Lugosi was so effective in that movie. That was a tough act to follow. I mean, again, you can argue Max Schreck was technically the first one, but no one really completely acknowledged him as Dracula. And again, that was a silent film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lugosi was a tough act to follow. You know, for me, as I look at all the different Draculas, it really, and the many different interpretations by, again, a wide variety of actors... It really boils down to how you want Dracula interpreted. And for me, again, Christopher Lee's my favorite Dracula because he was a monster. And You can't go wrong with him. <laughs> you can't go wrong with him. And the thing that was interesting about Lee's portrayal... So, Bela Lugosi was great because he was sort of a just left-of-center perversion of part of the room society in England. Right. Because there's actually a lot of scenes in the 31 film where he's actually integrating in 
with the main cast members, which doesn't happen in a lot of the directors. Certainly doesn't happen in the novel. Right. So he's actually interacting with people. You can tell he's just, he's an invasive species, mm-hmm. but a very, unlike Nosferatu, or well, the vampire Nosferatu, he's not a plague bearer. He's actually sort of integrating in with them, but there's just something quite wrong about it. Right. So right. that was one wonderful interpretation. The Christopher Lee Dracula didn't care about, he didn't give a damn about people. He mm-hmm. was, as I've described, he's basically a hawk looking down on us like we were a bunch of field mice. Mm-hmm. I mean, he'd long gotten past the point where he cared about us. We we're just food and, yeah. and things to manipulate. He was a very demonic Dracula. Langella's was a tragic, romantic Dracula. Jack Palance's version in, in the TV movie, the 74 TV movie, he was much like he was in the Coppola version. He was you know, a shunned aristocrat trying to find the last love, but had an incredibly bad temper about him right. along the way. So, and Oldman's was kind of a mix of a number. Oldman's was interesting. I thought I would have said that about he Oldman was, as well. Yeah. Well, Oldman's was kind of a combination of Lugosi's along with the tragic, you know, yeah. with the backstory. And um, his was really a unique mix of a number of different ones. So it really depends on how what you want Dracula to be. And again, as I think we've already mentioned, not very many of them were super close to the one in the novel, frankly. The one who probably gave the best shot of it was, again, Christopher Lee in the 1970 film. But it just didn't quite work completely mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. But it was probably the closest attempt to mirror the Dracula in the book. Well, and again, and I, I can't overstate this enough, Dracula doesn't show up a lot in the novel. No. So, you know, he's he's a force to be reckoned with in all of these movies. But in the novel, and I, again, I haven't seen the BBC thing, but... If you were to really be faithful to the novel, you would have Dracula in a two-hour movie, maybe in the first 10 to 12 minutes. He'd be gone throughout the entire things, other than when he's attacking Lucy. Right. And then you wouldn't see him again till the end, right? And you'd have some very unhappy people. Right. I mean, the, the key to all of this for me is that there's a reason that heavy artistic license has been taken with the novel. Because if you were to shoot the novel as is, it would be a very, very unwieldy tale. Right. I mean, there's a, a, to some degree... Unless you really did it as a very expensive miniseries, I don't think you could capture all... There's a lot of just going back and forth and, and some story elements to it that are just seem somewhat disconnected. There's some pretty big plot holes in the novel, too. Sort of vague why he ever... Dracula, that is, ever really intends to come to London. That's not extremely well detailed. Uh, we talked about Renfield's character. You could literally do without him and not miss a whole lot. In fact, several of the movies have completely right. done without Renfield. Or merged his character with Jonathan. Right, as, as was the case in the Lugosi film, which was a really smart tactic. The Demeter scene, as wonderful and powerful it is, has So just yet. remind, remind our listeners the Demeter scene. Uh, that I'm we sorry. talk about that again. So when Dracula decides to head over to London, he takes a ship. And during the course of the sea voyage over here, he pretty much kills the entire crew. The captain straps himself to the wheel, gets killed for his efforts anyway. So once the ship actually arrives... And he's feeding on the crew He's feeding the on the crew. Time, yeah. yeah, throwing them overboard when he's done with them. By the time the ship actually arrives in London, there's nobody on board but the captain strapped to the wheel dead in a bunch of coffins and uh, full of dirt. And a dog jumps off the ship and goes off into the city, if I recall correctly goes running off in the distance in the knees and then there's some inference that there's a wolf escape from the zoo and they might be connected but this also might be how dracula is controlling the animals correct correct and that's a little kind of implied but one question you can always ask about the demeter scene was that you know if he could have held his appetite a little bit longer it wouldn't have been less conspicuous if he just left everybody alone and just arrived in london in his coffins and let them unload the cargo you know, without raising any suspicion, but eh, you're Dracula, yeah. you do what you got to do. And I, and I, similar to the Renfield scenes, I think it's, it's great horror, that whole yeah, scene. Yeah, oh, it's a terrific, yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think Bram Stoker did a, a wonderful job talking about that, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but this is one of the, what I didn't realize walking into the novel was uh, the Dracula could control weather. I'd never seen that before in any of the movies about how he can control fog. He can uh, create snow. And and we learn a little bit more about that, but that is, he's actually guiding the ship both in that scene and when he's fleeing back to uh, Transylvania. I did make some notes. There were several points reading my Kindle edition. I read, I, I was reading the Kindle edition and that 800 page version at the same time. Not really flattering portrayals of women in this novel. There's a lot of scenes where it's like, 
oh, it's a good thing Lucy isn't doing this because we men need to handle this. And she is a poor, I wouldn't say poor defenseless woman, but she's pure and she can't be bothered with any of this. And there was not a lot of female empowerment well, going on. A lot of damsel in distress is what yeah, it was. Absolutely. And, um, you know, again, part of that may go down to, may be attributed to if Stoker, the point of Stoker's novel was concerns about uh, sexual promiscuity and other elements right. that may have played into it as well. But I, I think that also is sort of a sign of the times, the writing perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. Well. It's, it's one of those uh, when, when, when the Appendix N book club does these novels, they say, is there stuff that didn't age well? I would say those are parts of the novel that didn't age well, which I thought was really well done in the Werner Herzog movie. Lucy becomes, she almost takes the Van Helsing role in becoming the aggressor in vanquishing Dracula, which is quite nice. Yeah, in both Nosferatu films, ultimately it's the woman takes charge and albeit sacrificing herself in the process, is the one who kills the vampire. In fact, I think in Herzog film, more specifically to your point, she really is the strongest character because the male characters in the film are either victims themselves Mm -hmm. or generally kind of useless. Van Helsing in the 79 Nosferatu says, I, I don't know what's going on. Hey, something's happening. So he's really kind of the most useless Van Helsing right, right. ever. Right. Speaking of plot holes, there was one thing in the novel that kind of caught my attention in this. At one point, Van Helsing is talking about how Dracula has a child brain. And what Van Helsing starts talking about is, yes, given that Dracula has all these powers, which we will talk about in a bit, Given that he's got all these incredible powers, it's a good thing he doesn't know how to use them. Otherwise, we'd be toast. So Van Helsing insinuates that Dracula's got a child brain and he doesn't have much of a memory. And only now is he starting to experiment with what his powers are. But to me, there's been no change in Dracula's condition over the last several hundred years. So why would he suddenly be experimenting with his powers? Well, I, of course, am an expert in having a child brain. (laughs) So I'm glad you're posting that question over to me. No argument here. (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate your support. But to me, here's what that really ultimately translates into, is that one of the biggest gripes I've ever had with with vampire fiction, either in print or in movie, is that you you establish this immortal character, the Prince of Darkness, who's hundreds, maybe thousands of years old, has the wisdom of the ages at his hands, and therefore should know everything you're doing before you even do it. And he ultimately winds up dying in the stupidest fashion possible. I think that's the Ravenloft Dracula you just described. Well, there you go. Well, I mean, even in a lot of the movies, it's like, oh my gosh, he stayed out too late and got caught in the sunlight. Right, Or, oh, and, and, well, it wasn't a Dracula film, but it was actually a Count Yorga film, which same difference, where he just sort of runs at this guy and runs into a stake inadvertently. And what you then realize is that while Dracula may be hundreds of years old and infinitely wise, writers are not. True. And so what I think you wind up having is writers like, and no offense to these, well, Stoker's dead, he's not going to be mad at me, but you have these writers who have to come up with things like that to justify why they can't come up with what the wisdom of 500 years would really look and sound like. And really, I think the other way to look at that. Some dude finishing all your sentences. Yeah. 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 So, um, and and some good Dracula fiction actually covers some of that territory that I've read. The other way I think you can sort of justify it, that in some of the Dracula fiction, some things, it's like he may be hundreds of years old and have all these powers, but he's still ultimately kind of a a feral animal at heart. Mm -hmm. And he still is following instincts and lust. And that was really the key of the Nosferatu films. What destroys him ultimately is his lust gets the better of his intellect. Right. Um, By staying out, feeding so long, he stays out until the sun um, melts him. Yeah, and actually, so this is a good point to bring this up. So even in the novel, they, they talk about Dracula being a Nosferatu. We actually hear that term in the novel, and that's a legendary creature. And there are legendary powers and weaknesses associated with that. And it's through that discussion that Van Helsing tells us what all of Dracula's powers are. Here's some of the things that people think are the powers. Um, My first question is, what are Dracula's powers? He has the power to turn into a bat. He has the power to be able to live forever. Karina, could you tell me what are some of Dracula's powers? He's a vampire, so Mm -hmm. he'll suck blood. Well, he can turn into a bat live indefinitely, apparently. Uh, he can seduce women, from my 
remember he, for some reason, they fall prey to him and then he chops them in the neck. What are Dracula's powers? Well, he's a vampire, so he... Wait, did you hear one? <laughs> Wait what are vampire's powers? I actually have no clue. Hmm, maybe like mind control or something? I don't know, my only vampire experience is Vampire Diaries, so like, <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> Rumor is Dracula can read minds and he can manipulate the mind and he can hypnotize and uh, I don't know. I think that's about it that I know of. And in the novel, here are some of the things he can do. He can command the brute beasts. So what this means is he can actually control mundane animals like dogs and bats and other creatures and so he does that throughout the novel as we've talked about he can command weather he could command fog he can create snow or command he talks about they talk about command so i don't know if he can create it out of midair although he does do the fog he creates the fog right. the fog's he, a prominent one yeah the fog. it's also an easy special effect he can command the dead they talk about that so ultimately these other vampires he's creating his wives and lucy at some regard he's able to control those he is super strong the guy has the strength of 20 men they talk about in the novel. And then the other one that was interesting is they talk about that he can grow and become small. And one of the interesting scenes, again, in the Lucy scene, as well as when they are, quote unquote, spiking the coffins closed so that Dracula can't go back to it. Van Helsing's talking about, oh, you have to get in all the nooks and crannies because he can turn into super small to get back into his coffin. And the way they prevent that is they turn holy wafers into paste and they use it like caulking mm -hmm. under doors and in right. coffins and whatnot, which I thought was really interesting and effective. And I hadn't seen that done in any movies. Kind of like how you see salt circles for demons and right, whatnot. Right, right, right. These holy wafers. Yeah. Stephen E., why don't you take us through some of the weaknesses of Dracula, the, the, the novel version of Dracula? Well, the weaknesses of Dracula, I think, are really sort of what make him special, and this is where there's a lot of heavy religious symbolism in the character, because really, if you think about it, Dracula's not that hard to stave off, avoid, or get rid of. First of all, well, no particular order, for Dracula to get to you, you have to invite him into your home. Mm -hmm. um, or you go into his castle, same difference. An invitation has to be made. He can't just crawl in through your window and get you. So that's one key weakness. Number two, obviously, depending on which version, daylight. So in the novel, he can go out into daylight. His powers just aren't as powerful. Yeah, he doesn't turn into puffs of smoke like no, 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 or sparkly. It's not. No, it's not. It's not a toxic allergy for him. Right. Um, it's just a a liability for him of some sorts. But he can still function in daylight. Garlic. In fact, when he yes. makes his reappearance in the novel, after so many pages, it's when Jonathan and mina are out walking around and they actually see see dracula out right out shopping. right now yeah. he's usually if i'm not he's covered up he's usually got right. a cloak and a hat and stuff on so he's you know he's taking precautions that those of us with light complexions would take in the sunlight anyway right right he's also allergic to wolfsbane and garlic mm -hmm. for a number of reasons partly because he has just heightened senses those things he probably would have a problem with axe body spray and a few things mm. too but never really covered in the books crucifixes wafers religious symbols he's completely adverse to mm -hmm. and of course the wooden stake through the heart um, but also if i recall in the novel he's can be killed with silver he can be killed with edged weapons as well so he does have other vulnerabilities yeah there is a there is a long section to kill him off they have to behead him he's beheaded they have to stake right. him and then behead him correct correct yeah. there's also i think i don't remember it was the novel but in some Various versions, running water is a problem for him as well. Right, and that is in the novel. It, it's it's in the novel he cannot cross water on his own volition, so he needs to be carried or transported, and that's why yes. he's in the Hence boat. The Demeter, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is where I think there's some heavy religious symbolism with Dracula, whether it was intentional or unintentional on Stoker's part, or if you think about what it takes to keep Dracula away, basically. If Dracula is the ultimate evil, and if you're a Catholic, a Christian of other religious persuasions, okay, how do we avoid evil? Well, we're not going to let him into our home, so we have to consciously avoid asking evil into our house. If we get behind the religious symbolism and, and get behind God himself, we can avoid him because he's going to be allergic to the cross. And if we ultimately expose him to light, 
he will dis- mm. disappear as well. So there's a lot of heavy symbolism, religious symbolism behind the weaknesses of Dracula. That makes sense. Yeah. And I know there's definitely, and I would have to, I'd have to go back and reread it, but it's, he has to rest in his own soil. Yeah. And yeah. so that, I mean, and, and that's a big part in all the movies and whatnot, having to go back to his coffin and sleep in his coffin and carry the dirt around. And there was how he has to find solace in his own ground. And actually, I mm-hmm. believe that ground had to be holy ground. So he was from a chapel in the castle. And he actually, when he comes to London, he goes to Carfax Abbey. It's an abandoned church. So, Stephen E., what does the future hold for Dracula? Do we think that's going to go on for another 200 years? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think uh, we're in a little bit of a, a little bit of a Dracula drought right now, specifically Dracula. I mean, vampire films have not gone away. We've had a, actually a number of years. We've had a lot of really terrific vampire films that have not been Dracula. So the Dracula legacy is still played out. Yeah, with that's vampire where I'm going to go with my thoughts. But as far as Dracula himself goes, I one thing I don't think is a good focus is for them to, to ever try to do anything that's cl- too close to the novel. I just think the novel is as good as it is, as many good things it has, it doesn't directly lend itself to good film narrative. But I think if they can, we'll, we'll get another few Dracula films. I, there's already been talk about, I think at one point, Idris Elba playing Dracula in right. the MonsterVerse reboot of it um which i think would be fantastic he has such wonderful presence and would be a good take on dracula so i I think we'll get more elegant dracula films i really hope they focus on on the right elements of it and find a way to make it relevant to whatever the current fears of the time are dracula and vampires are really good now because like i said identity theft is having literally having your soul taken away from you having your identity and your willpower taken away from you is probably one of the greatest fears we have now so I think um, a Dracula film that could tap into those fears would be a terrific film. We'll get more Dracula films. I think at least once a decade we're going to get some degree of reboot of it, for better or worse. Long past when we've shed our mortal coil, there will still be various interpretations of Dracula that will be appropriate to whatever the concerns of the time are. Right. So I was gonna I was gonna say something similar. So I would say people are always doing incredibly clever things with vampires. Right. You know, there's there's off, so off the top of my head, some of my favorite vampire movies of late. Well, I don't know if late. I'm an old guy, but um, <laughs> you know, you're Ethan, late is a long period, right, much exactly. like my late. Yeah, Ethan Hawke's Daybreakers I thought was a really interesting take about how how vampires become more feral. Yeah, if they don't yeah. have enough blood. The Thirty Days of Night. It's like okay, so now you're in a you're yeah. in a town where the sun never comes up. And frankly, even though it's a guilty pleasure, because I like Kate Beckinsale, um, Underworld. I thought Underworld was a, a lovely take on the whole. It's been an eternal war versus vampire or uh, versus werewolves or lichens, as they like to call it. But you know, you've got Near Dark and you've got Salem's Lot and everything else. I mean, it's just such a rich tapestry to be able to tell new stories. Well, the terrific thing too about it is that it spans countries. I mean, in the, in the last couple decades. We've had, um, I want to think it was it from Sweden, the really great film Let the Right One In, which was remade right, here right. as oh, Let yeah. Me In. We had The Girl Who Walks at Night, I think it was an uh, Israeli film. I think mm-hmm. I may have the title slightly off, came out a couple of years ago. We have films come from Europe, from the U.S., from Canada, from Japan. So vampires, all influenced by the Dracula legacy, continue to come out, and every country has its own version of them. And, every, right. uh, you know, it's amazing just how pervasive the legend and the, the lore is yeah and i would say like i mean we, we didn't talk about this usually we talk about the differences in the novel and books but i would say if there's a common thread through all these it's like they have a hard time in daylight right. and they have to they they're they're viruses they suck off right. other people right you know for their own survival but much beyond that they sometimes they fly <laughs> sometimes they turn mm-hmm. into a giant mantis mm-hmm. Actually, did we talk about the Giant Mantis movie? Did yes, you, oh, and the, the Dario Argento one, in which he turns into an owl at one point, then a giant mantis, and ultimately becomes one of the most boring Draculas in movie <laughs> history, despite that. I think the Dracula movie, I would like to see if I were, if they <laughs> if they threw some Hollywood money at me, the Dracula movie I would make would be almost like a Twilight Zone Dracula. You wouldn't know you were watching a Dracula movie. Mm, yeah. I would set it in 
colonial New England, like in the 1600s, it would probably have a mood similar to the witch. Uh, and then at some point after thing, bad things start happening to you, you realize that one of the judges is named Van Helsing. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit, I'm in a Dracula movie. That's what's happening. That's that's kind of a movie I'd like to see. Well, that's a terrific idea because if you think about it, if you're Dracula and you've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah. and you, you have this kind of peculiar habit about you and people start disappearing or whatever, you have to find a way of not making yourself too obvious. You have to find a way of disappearing into the, right, right. into the fabric or having your deeds blamed on other things. So Yeah, that the you, Salem yeah. Whip trials were actually Dracula right. killing people off. Yeah, it would be a, great, be a great idea. So yeah. um, the Somebody idea get that, on that. Universal, give me a call. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. If anybody... Yeah, I'm sure they'll they're on it. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, any last words for the episode that you want to cover? I've watched an awful lot of Dracula movies. I mean, I always have, but man, have I watched a lot of Dracula movies yeah, well, lately? You're, you're a better man because of it. I can't wait to get on to Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's our show. We're going to do a little bit of housekeeping now. I'd like to give a shout out to Bob Brinkman, who did our fabulous voiceovers tonight to read from the text of Dracula. I'd also like to give a shout out to Corey, who went out and did all of our interviews for us to figure out what people knew about vampires. So we heard from Estella and Lisa and Kelsey and Steve Payne. That would be Mr. Payne's father. Yes. And Ava. And we did get a piece of email this week from Ray Wisniewski, who writes in and tells us, Hey, did you notice that in the Bella Lugosi version of Dracula, there's a piece of cardboard taped to the lamp, <laughs> which I had not noticed. And there's a video out there on YouTube, and we'll link to it in our show notes. But um, thank you for that, Ray. Ray's a, an awesome supporter, both in this and the um, games that we write. So we want to give big shout outs to Ray and Game Castle in Santa Clara. Yeah, by the way, Ray, thanks for ruining the movie for everyone for now on. But it's funny when you pointed that out. I had not noticed that before, and it's great. You're looking at the watching the movie, and you're just trying to picture the art director telling the director, hey, look, look, the cardboard's just on the lamp to, you know, just as a filter. No no one's going to notice it. Just shoot around it. Won't be a problem. No, no, no one will ever pick up on this. No big deal. And here we are. You know, almost a hundred years later, and we're having YouTube videos showing it. Well, to so. its credit, I didn't notice it, and we just watched it. <laughs> no, I didn't it. either, yeah, but, you so. know, it's... <laughs> Did you have any shout-outs you wanted to do? Yeah, a few, actually. First of all, to Eric Stryker, who's my investment guy. He's taken real good care of my money over the years, and he's been listening to our podcasts and made a comment recently that he's enjoyed it so much, he wants to actually go back and watch some of the movies we're talking about. So I think that's... That's pretty cool praise. Always good to influence listeners. We like that. Very much so. Also, Devin Devereaux, he's an original artist who I run into many of times down in Southern California. I have uh, a lot of his work on my wall, and I actually wanted to mention him earlier when we were talking about the, the legacy of Dracula and how big it has been, especially in the film industry. So Devin has, over the course of the year, set about trying to do original portraits of every actor who's ever played Dracula. And I checked one of them this weekend, and he told me, yeah, I'm just up to um, Jack Palance in the 70s. Yeah, so that, it gives that guy's got idea. his work cut out for him. He's got his work cut out. He's a wonderful artist, but I just wanted to talk about the great work he did. And also, someone had made a comment on Facebook, Todd McGowan, had asked if we were going to be talking about Spanish Dracula. And oh, right. I brought it up very briefly early in my kind of timeline of Dracula movies, but it's I'll just take a minute. It's interesting to talk about. So those who don't know the story here, so at the time the Todd Browning, Bela Lugosi Dracula film was being shot by Universal in 31, at the same time they were doing a Spanish language version of the same film. The idea was that in the daytime they were going to be shooting the Todd Browning Lugosi film. At night, using the same script and the same sets, they're bringing in a Spanish-language cast and crew, although, uh, oddly enough, with an American director who didn't speak Spanish, to do that production. And they were basically going to be releasing the film simultaneously, the right. English and the Spanish language. The interesting thing there was that the Spanish-language crew had the advantage of watching the Browning film being shot all day long and saying, you know what, we can do certain things better. And the result is, a, it's a really interesting film for historians. I won't say it's better than the Browning film, but it actually does some things especially technically better. There are actually some scenes that are actually even a little creepier 
Thin and Lugosi films. So it's really kind of an inspirational, an interesting bit of film history that almost got lost. Thankfully, Universal salvaged it. Hmm. But it's really an interesting bit of film history, especially in the Dracula lore. So if you haven't seen it and you're interested, I encourage people to look that up. Oh, very cool. Yeah, we'll have to... Uh, I know it was on the box set that we were watching at your house, so there was some right, really right. interesting uh, different portrayals between Spanish Dracula and Lugosi. So. Yeah, and actually, speaking of social commentary, we are getting some comments on the Book of Faces and whatnot. So uh, again, shout-outs to Jim Graziano, his son Wallace... Uh, Michael Harrington, who's got his own, I believe he's got his own podcast coming up for Dark Trail soon. Mm, okay. So we'll have to give that a listen. To find us, we are at blackinkredfilm at gmail.com if you want to send us an email. We're also on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And we have an Instagram feed. And those are actually managed by Corey, who also did our interviews. So we want to give her a big thank you for that. Yes, thank you, Corey. All right. So next month, I believe we said we were going to do Frankenstein. That is the plan. Before we get there, I think we have to give ourselves a little. We we reached a certain milestone. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, big milestone. Why don't you tell us about it? So we have now passed one thousand downloads. One thousand downloads. That's pretty so cool. Thank you for everyone yes, who stuck you. with us. Um, we hope to be multi thousands of downloads yes. sometime soon. Tens of thousands. Tens we want to get. Thousands. Yeah. We want to, you know, expand on those zeros after the comma. Sounds great. Actually, before the comma, I guess. That's right. yeah. Be part of the <laughs> two comma club. Whatever. The two comma club would be awesome. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. We will talk to you next month. Good night. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.